0: Grief is scary. Loss is scary. And every way that you want to honor this person as you move forward in your life, moving with them, I honor that and I validate that. And whatever ritual you can find, I hope and pray that that is the very thing that you need in order to keep moving forward. That's how we move forward. We move with.
1: Thank you again, June, for being on here. I can't tell you how much it means. with someone with your experiences, there's so much to learn. And um, I would love people to understand a little bit more about you. And just some of the bullet points that people will see on your Instagram page were very eye-opening in itself. Um, I mean, to lead with your, you said you're an ex-atheist and now you're a follower of Christ all the way to your Korean descent and being a hospital chaplain. How would you describe people to yourself to get a better understanding of who you are?
0: i uh hospital chaplain for eight years, and uh, that means I attend every death, every code blue trauma. I work in a thousand-plus bed, level one trauma center. And so it's very, very fast-paced. And at the same time, as you can imagine, being among those who are dying and at deathbeds, there's also a stillness that I work in as well. So yeah, I didn't expect my platform to grow as it did. That was very surprising for me. But I think also it indicates that people want to very much talk about grief, death, and loss, that they're, they're open to it, willing, and want to, and maybe don't have all the spaces that they can, so they find spaces online to be able to discuss that. Ex-atheist, I grew up atheist just because uh, my family was very mixed religiously, and at some point, I think, found faith, uh, the God that I understand, of my own understanding as they say. And, uh, you know, very much following in the way of Christ. Um, And at the same time, as an interfaith chaplain, open to everyone, will serve everyone. If a room does not want to see me, I will, of course, immediately, politely take my leave. And so I will see anyone of any background, any religion, any orientation, wherever they come from. Uh, I'm here for them to serve where they're at.
1: I love that. And so, you know, one of the headlines that, you know, you promote on the front page of your Instagram in regards to an article in several articles, it specified, and this is eye opening, that you've counseled thousands of dying patients and that thousands is such an incredible number. So I, I, I want to tap into your experiences being around grief and loss and counseling so many families after losing someone. But back into you being in, you know, prior being an atheist, why were you an atheist? And how come you're not anymore?
0: Yeah, you know, my, I guess my simple short answer is um, I found out very early on that I was born by accident, I guess you could say. I was not planned on. And so, at least in my limited understanding, I thought that I was some kind of cosmic interruption, like me being in the timeline, I shouldn't have been here, that kind of thing, you know? So I decided that, uh, you know, this is all kind of just, haphazard, accidental, molecular nothingness. And so uh, everything that happens is without purpose, including myself. And so uh, for me, atheism, nihilism, pessimism, those frameworks made sense to me. Um, And I think it wasn't until, I want to say, much later in life, probably my early 20s, I found this church and it was more of a social gathering for me. And it was among other Asian Americans. So I was excited to find people that looked like me. And at the same time, this place had just this supernatural love to them. And I really want to say that it was the love of this church that got me to kind of extrapolate backwards to kind of think there's got to be a source to all of this. And so, like I said at the top, I mean, the God of my own understanding, I found that for me, the source was there is this God of love. And that there is purpose, and of course, out of all respect to my atheist friends and, and family members, you know, for me, having that kind of sort of cosmic structure or order or purposefulness was very meaningful to me. And uh, you know, it's sad to say, David, is that I think if I had found or visited a church now, I'm not sure I would have found the same kind of love, especially with sort of the way that um, we're seeing the American church, at least, or the Western church, the direction a lot of it's going, but. I'm very, very lucky that in my 20s I was able to find a church that, to me, expressed a divine love that was undeniable. Really,
1: wow! You know, I honestly wasn't expecting that. It's um, thank you for sharing that because, you know, with with all the the grief and death you've been around, I was curious to see if your experiences around that process and that transition, if you will, had an implication on your belief system. So, has seeing that being around that death process and having these experiences and these powerful stories, has that further inclined your belief in regards to our purpose or what happens after we die and what the hell we're doing here?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, to be truthful, and um, I've I've written about this a couple times, I've, uh, I've lost my faith probably a couple times at least during the last eight years. And I've come back around and it's changed each time. And uh, I think the it's not just the death and dying that I've seen that has impacted me so much, but it's the degree to which I've seen suffering. And sometimes the suffering, it seems like it's just too much. And there are times that I've literally, whether it's prayer or venting or cursing, have just said, God, why don't you just ease up a little bit on this? you know, this family has been through enough. Can you just stop? Can you, can you just back off? And, uh, you know, during my chaplain residency, that's a year long education program. I did that in 2016. I, I completely reverted back to atheism for a while. And I just thought it's more comfortable. It's easier to just go back to believing that things happen for no reason. There's no purpose. There's no order. It's just lawlessness. And, uh, You know, I still struggle with that, to be honest, David. Because I've just seen—it feels like I've seen too much. There are times when I've seen so much where I'm like, "God, what God?" And then there are other times where I'm like, "I don't think I could do this without understanding that there is some sort of unchangeable source uh, that loves us through uh, it—something that is fixed and inalterable." So I go back and forth, David. It's—it's not easy, for sure.
1: I'm sure. I mean, I'm not sure, but I'm also sure at the same time. What can you elaborate on that contrast? Like, were there any, I'm sure there's many experiences, but are there there any two experiences that, um, you know, get into that, what you just explained more meaning. Is there one experience that deferred your belief system that was so tragic? And then on the opposite spectrum, what is the most powerful experience that you've had that restored your faith?
0: Yeah. You know what? Um, I feel like I'm I'm plugging myself when I say this, but I do write about it in in the book that I just submitted. Um, But uh, there is one very specific experience that I can point to in my residency. And of course, I'm I'm, uh, changing the details for privacy, but there was one family that I saw that their babies had died. And uh, I really struggled with that one. And of course, I probably see... Uh, babies who have died every other week, if not sometimes every week. It's uh, unfathomable, just the level of of grief and pain. And um, this uh, mother asked me if I could pray and pray the type of prayer where I could talk about what they might have become. And as I told their story in this prayer, I felt faith literally leaving my body. It's almost like I gave it to her. You know, the story of hope, the story of some parallel universe where her children lived. And it's something uh, that could never be. And she was asking me almost to weave it into existence. And as I did that, when I left the room, I said, forget it. I can't, uh, I can't believe in a God that would do this, allow this. I mean, I get suffering, I get death, I get dying. But why, why so much suffering? Why? Why, was, why were these babies born just to die? so, you know, I feel like I've seen that so many times. It's just like I leave pieces of myself in the room every time. I know that's, I'm sorry, David, it's such a downer to talk about, you know, and at the same time, that's real, you know, it's what I deal with.
1: Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the reality of this stuff happens. And that's, I I think it's important to me to highlight those experiences to show the reality of it, but also to pick up the, uh, the mood a little bit in regards to that. What is the contrast of that? What experiences have you had with these patients and families that restored, you know, your belief in whatever happens next, uh, universe, religion? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, to answer the second half of that question, my, uh, supervisor, shout out to Jenny, amazing, incredible person, she would say this in a way that was not like glossing over or bow tying or anything like that. But she would say sometimes in a, in a patient's room or a case that we would have, she would say, not always, but sometimes you can find the resurrection. And what she meant by that is, do you see an act of love, an act of kindness? Do you see one thing that the patient or their family can hold on to? And it's not that this trial or tragedy or trauma had to happen in order for this person to find something positive. But in the wreckage, once in a while, a shaft of light does appear. Not to teach a lesson, but it's just out of that wreckage, there still can be good that is found. Sometimes a shoot grows in the middle of rubble. So there are times, gosh, I see the way that when when loss sort of just Rips the heart out of families in these rooms, you know, because I accompany doctors when sometimes we have to deliver news. You know, they didn't make it through the surgery. We're sorry to tell you that your loved one, dot, dot, dot. I see sometimes a way that uh, children, young children, in their sheer like purity or innocence or something, if there's something just so Uh, abundant and bountiful in them, I think, because the world hasn't quite taken everything from them yet, if that makes sense, as dark as that sounds. The way that they can comfort their parents or each other in loss, the way that I've seen love cover grief is enough for me to say, this love is supernatural and divine. That's the kind of love that I see that makes me believe And uh, it's not that it's cured or resolved. It's not that everything is just fixed or made better. But I can see how faith, I can see how a divine love is so important in rooms where there is the vacuum, the pull of loss. And so I've seen that. And just the way that people can be present for each other and love one another through that, for me, just enough, I think, to lead me to believe something, something greater than ourselves.
1: Okay. that make, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, especially in that moment. It's just interesting because after that, after the dust kind of settles, quote unquote, as time goes on, you know, it's hard to maintain that blanket of love in some sense because there's so much that comes with grief in the next coming days, weeks, months for the rest of your life. So with all your experiences, are, are there any quote-unquote grief tools that you've pulled from your experiences that you that you either express in these moments where you're counseling these families upon loss or moving forward? Like, What have you pulled from this grief process that you can allude to people that are grieving right now?
0: Yeah, David, thanks, thank you for that question. You know, there's there's nothing I, I want to formulize or make as kind of like a one, two, three type of plan. But I can say there are at least these three things that for me have been helpful And that I try to call in mind in a room. And I don't try to make it a formula. I don't try to necessarily even just call it out as, here are the things you need to do. But what I found very helpful is if in some sense I can bring this, name the thing that is happening. We can't deny or look away. Because the more that we do that, grief doesn't actually necessarily leave our body. We can suppress it or we can name it. So name the loss that is happening. Name what's happening in our bodies and then validate it. You know, when I've seen expressions of grief, I think some people would be surprised how the body can express itself because I've seen the wailing, I've seen chairs being thrown, I've seen people punching walls, I've seen even dancing and laughing and clapping, rolling on the floor, extreme expressions of grief, quote unquote extreme. And I've also seen numbness. Cognitive fog, complete silence, no tears, people fainting. And sometimes people will say, you know, you're not crying, do you even care? And sometimes people are so much in shock because of the grief that it hasn't either quite hit them yet, but that's really all they can do in that moment. And for me, I want to validate both ends of that expression. So we name the thing that's happening. We also validate what is happening. And then maybe further down the line, and sometimes this happens in the room too, Uh, I can't find a better word for this, but we ritualize. In other words, how do we honor the memory of the person that just died or the loss that has just occurred? And so sometimes that means let's do fingerprints. Let's take a lock of hair. We print out on the EKG, the last of the uh, patient's heart rate and nurses do an amazing job of this. They put it inside a bottle with a cork and there's a label in some way, ritualize and honor the memory of those who have gone before us. Because I think there is something in our culture, and I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, David, where we don't want to talk about death. We want to don't want to talk about dying. Let's turn the page. Let's let go. We need to move forward. But I very much think, and to quote Megan Devine from her book, um, It's Okay to Be Not Okay, she says that we don't move on, we move with. We don't move on, we move with. I very much think that in Westernized cultures, moving on is something that has become very popular and even indoctrinated. We bury bodies six feet under. We jettison and sever all belongings in garage sales. We say that we need to go ahead and start the exercise program and get on the diet and start dating again and start to live life again. But in every other culture throughout the world now and throughout history, Honoring the dead and honoring the memory of our ancestors and those before us is a vital and even life-giving practice and ritual, because the person who is gone, they were once so a part of our lives that once they're gone, uh, it leaves a person-shaped hole in our hearts. It's like tearing fixture fixtures away at every point that they intersected, important in our lives. So to ask someone just to move on from that—that that one person in existence, who gave meaning to our lives, that's a big and probably impossible ask. So for the rest of my life, the friends that I've lost, the patients that I've lost, the family that I've lost, I still want to carry their memory. I still want to carry all the ways in which they made me laugh and influenced me, taught me lessons, the way that they've imprinted upon me. That's not something I'm going to let go. That's something that I'm going to allow to make me bigger, to expand me people think that grief is shrinkage or somehow holds you down or holds you back. But I really think grief eventually and its expression of ritualizing is a way to make our hearts bigger, our lives bigger, our minds and our stories bigger. It's a way of carrying with so that I'm more full, not leaking, but larger. And so what I can tell anyone who's listening, watching, Is that if people have told you, you got to let go, move on, turn the page. I get why we say that. Because grief is scary. Loss is scary. It seems easier to let go. But suppressing grief, burying grief, it stays. It's not something that can just easily be removed from the body. So how do we honor what our body is telling us? And how do we honor the people that are gone? And I'm here to tell you that every expression that you have of grief, I validate that. In every way that you want to honor this person as you move forward in your life, moving with them, I honor that and I validate that. And whatever ritual you can find, um, I hope and pray that that is the very thing that you need in order to keep moving forward. It's how we move forward, we move with.
1: That's, I, I, you said that you took the words out of my mouth. It's not moving on. And I think it's moving forward and you can, you can move forward with them in however way you please, whether or not, regardless of what you believe in. Some people might believe like you've in the past believe that nothing happens. So how could I move on with someone with the memory and the experiences you had that can always stay with you? So I think that's. Beautifully said, and you may have answered it, but I've heard you quote or again, I saw at some point mentioning being a grief catcher. Is that tying in with what you just said? Is like, you elaborate on what you mean by being a grief catcher? If that's not what you already just stated,
0: yeah, you know, I think there's multiple levels of that um, being a grief catcher. Like I've literally caught people falling over when they're in their grief, people who are fainting or people who um, physically are just overwhelmed by it. You know, and in some sense, I also catch stories, you know, when uh, the people in the room who are grieving, the bereaved, uh, at some point, they will tell the story about their loved one who has died, or I may even ask them. And uh, in some ways, I am catching their story. I'm catching the story in their grief. And then I think also there's a part of me that vicariously catches their grief as well. And that's a tough part of actually being a grief catcher. But what I've noticed is that me, especially that last one, me vicariously catching the grief of the people in the room, we can't do this grief alone. We can't grieve alone. And even though I walk into a room 99% of the time, I'm a stranger, I think there's something about bearing the unbearable with someone else that makes it just slightly bearable. So even though I'm a stranger, even though I walk in with this badge, I have this title, chaplain, uh, I enter where they're at. And in some way, I'm catching their grief vicariously. And it's hard. It's not easy for me either. But when we grieve together for them, they're able to see someone is here, someone cares. And the memory of this person, I get to share it with someone else. I get to tell their story. I get to lift them up in some way. And uh, it's my honor to catch those stories, to catch my patients and their families' grief. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I mean by by grief catcher.
1: Yeah, it's an important lesson for people that are around others just day to day, and whether you're a chaplain or not a chaplain, too, because we're all going to experience loss in our own way, and especially other people around us, if not personally. And how that's a good way to kind of, in my head, to look at like how can we be a grief catcher for someone else. And then it also balances with what you're doing. It's interesting to see how you, how you balance that in regards to what you do for a living and what you've done for a living and then living your own life. So how, how do you balance those two things by catching someone else's grief and not letting that affect your personal life in many ways?
0: Yeah, I wish I could say that I, I found the secret <laughs> for work-life balance. You know, sometimes people ask me like, uh, what do you do for self-care? Um, I have the professional answer, you know, which is like, oh, I exercise and I make sure that I eat right. And, you know, I take breaks and boundaries and things like that. And those are all good things. Those are necessary things. Uh, but truthfully, it's not easy, David, to balance all of this. It's, it's really, really hard. I wish I could say I'm one of those guys who like, you know, I can leave the work at work you know, and I come home and like, um, I'm just going to rest here and not think about work. I'm not one of those guys. I work with chaplains who, who can do that, but, uh, I'm just not one of them. And I just, I just carry it with me. Um, I think, and I hope I'm answering your question, David. I think what I've learned is to be comfortable in the way that I process my own grief, which is I just carry it with me. And in some way I honor that and I'm aware of it. And, uh, It used to bother me real bad that like, I'm like, gosh, why does this work affect me so much? Can I do this for another 20, 30 years? But I've come to realize that I own my thin skin and that the motor or the engine or the piece of my heart that is open to all of this grief is what makes me a chaplain. And if I shut that down, I can't be present with my patients and and so out of respect to every uh, everybody else who maybe they can compartmentalize in a way that makes them effective and and in some way I'm a little bit envious of that for me I'm open to all of it and I've stopped shaming myself for it you know it's a, it's okay to feel when I got to feel and I'll do all the things that I need to for self-care and take care of myself and to to make sure I honor my own body and rhythms and at the same time, I'm not going to shame myself for being able to feel in a room and be 100% all there. Uh,
1: that's, that's amazing. To me, it kind of sounds like a level of acceptance in some way. And I think that's important. I, I, wanted, I wanted you to answer that just because I think uh, the idea of grief, it always ties into the person that lost someone, but then say you're the husband of a wife that just lost their mother, for example, you are tied into that as the grief catcher, as you will, and that can affect you even though you didn't l- l- uh, just lose someone as close as that person. So th- there is that uh, that ripple effect of grief that affects everyone around you. So it's interesting to hear how you handle that. That can be applied to other people that are going through grief indirectly. I just think that's an important topic. And then kind of with the ideation of uh, maybe the wrong word of how dysfunctional I think Death is handled and viewed not across the globe because, like you mentioned, there's so many other cultures that I think celebrate it and handle it in, a, in my opinion, a much better and healthier way. Even though it might seem as extreme to perhaps in America and in the West, perhaps, but with that ideation that maybe we don't handle or discuss grief in a way that I think should be as opened. I wanted to tap into your experience in prisons. Do I have that right? Did you have experience? in prisons in some format with what you're doing? Do I have that wrong? Did I misread that?
0: You know, it was very, it was a very, very brief time. And uh, it was something that I was interested in pursuing. Uh, But yes, yes, you're right. There was a short time that I was uh, doing, I guess what you could call like prison ministry. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, certainly, it's not a long experience, but uh, something that was very meaningful some years ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the reason I bring that up is because I'm curious the duality of the mindset of people in prison with their death perspective and the outside world. But with your short time there, have you noticed any differences whether death is more accepted in prison? And if it is or isn't, why or why not?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, David. You know, we also get a lot of... um I guess you could say uh, prisoners or convicts in the hospital as well. In fact, if something happens in the prison that they're at and it's an emergency, uh, they will be brought to the hospital that I'm at. And I've I've visited quite a few of them in the last eight years. Um, You know, to answer that question, I guess I should pull back a little bit and say, I, I don't know if death is more or less accepted by someone in that situation. Maybe the assumption would be that, it that yes, it, it's more accepted. Just like, uh, you know, there are military chaplains. You would think maybe soldiers are more accepted uh, of death because they've seen more loss. I think what I've seen is everybody's response to death is just as varied as all the ways that we need differently. You know, we grieve differently as we need differently. But what I think what I've noticed in my experience uh, in that ministry from long ago And also with all the patients who I've visited, who they have like a one-on-one sitter, like an officer or deputy is there, they're handcuffed to the bed. What I've noticed is that they want the same dignity as any other patient and to be able to express the same fears and grief. And sometimes my speculation is that people may think that they can take more or that they're worth less because of what they've done. Because of where they're coming from. And what I found is that they want the same honor and dignity, worthiness, value. They want to be heard just as anyone else, if not even more, because they're not heard as much. And so um, when I visit, sometimes I'll see a patient's like, uh, I guess like their basic chart before I enter into a room. Sometimes I'll see like what they've done, like if it's a prisoner or someone coming from a prison or uh, ex-convict or something. I may see what they've done or get their history or they may be written as like non-compliant or something like that or aggressive. But when I enter you know I just if they have cancer or if they're they've been injured or I just see like anybody else, you know. Somebody who is in need, somebody who's hurt, somebody who's brought to the point where they got to be in a hospital and they they i try to honor them the same way that i would any other patient and in some ways i think there's a deep sadness when i visit them because i know that once they're healed and patched up and they recover and if they're able to be discharged you know they're probably going to go back you know to the same place that they were just from and so what can i do in that small space of time that i'm given to honor and dignify this person so david i'm not sure if i'm completely 100% answering your question But I would say our needs are varied. Our responses to death are all different. And at the same time, we all want to be treated with the same dignity and humanity as the next person.
1: I love that. Now, your answer is your answer. So this, to me, you answered it. (laughs) So I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) The one question I did want to like kind of tap into, again, what I already just asked, do you think our relationship, and it's a very general us, as I said, globally, it's different, our relationship to death, but... Why do you think people have trouble discussing death? And why is it important that we do develop a relationship to death, whether you've lost someone or not?
0: Yeah. You know, um, when someone in a room says something like, everything happens for a reason. It's God's will. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. Be strong. Don't cry. You know, that kind of thing. It used to really make me angry, like just really frustrate and irritate me because I'm like, you're not helping at all. And then further down the line, as I started to develop more empathy and compassion for everybody in the room, when I hear a statement like that, what I hear is, I'm scared and afraid of what is happening. So I just got to fill this scared silence with a platitude or a cliche in a way, not just to soothe the person who is hurting, but to soothe myself. And there is something in all of us, I think, naturally so that is scared of, afraid of mortality um, because it's coming for us all, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> it's a stranger creeping through the window and it's getting closer, inch by inch, second by second. And, uh, you know, you may have discussed this on your show already, David. There's There's something called TMT, which is terror management theory. And terror management is the idea that We come up with all kinds of coping mechanisms and philosophies in order to escape the fear of death. You know, the ancient Greeks would say, uh, you live for glory. Um, You know, all major religions have some kind of afterlife or some kind of way of coping with death uh, that has to do with uh, the spiritual realm, um, eternity, and things like that. And I guess you could say by this theory that everything that we do, whether brushing our teeth, being productive, making our bed, trying to make money, getting married, having kids, all the things that people need and want, you could say that's all a way of managing our terror, (laughs) the fear of death. How can I, in evolutionary terms, perpetuate myself and lengthen my life? And how can I, in personal and psychological, moral and spiritual terms, live a meaningful life when I know this is just the one that I've got? But um, I say all that to say... I don't think I can say to you, David, as much as I've seen and been through that I'm comfortable with death. You know, I, I, I don't think I can say that, oh, I, I've managed to now have this close, intimate relationship with death and it doesn't bother me. In fact, the work that I'm in, because I'm in a level one trauma center, I've seen probably hundreds of ways that people can die. And it's very alarming and it causes death anxiety. I, I just have this almost fear and panic sometimes. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone, and David, this is very macabre and, and you know, morbid, but I may imagine them dead. I just may, right in front of me, I'll imagine them in the hospital bed just because I see it so much. you know. And uh, what that does for me is on one hand, I have death anxiety, but on the other hand, I constantly have this pervasive thought, this could be the last time that I talk to this person. Either they'll go or I'll go. I don't know when the next time is that I'm going to talk to them. This could be it. And that sort of finality, that last time, last time, leads me, whether I want to or not, to be completely present in the moment, to be with that other person. And so I think there is something naturally scary and fearful about death that is completely understandable. So when people make those platitudes, those statements, whatever people wait that have a way of coping, I try not to judge them too much for that. And I just think, I know that you're scared, so I'll name it. And on the other hand, there's something about as we approach and face and talk about death and our mortality, that it deepens and expands our living. And it's something that we need to confront in ourselves at whatever tempo, whatever pace that we need. And it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I'm faced with it all the time. And at the same time, it has deepened, dare I say, maybe my appreciation uh, for living. And as cheesy and as cliche as that sounds, the end result is that I know that this second could be the last one. You know, there could be right now, David, an arteriovenous malformation forming in my brain right here. You know, I could have an aneurysm any second and that would be it. You know, we just don't know. I've seen all kinds of ways that people go. Uh, but what that leads me to is, I'm going to be right here, right now. And uh, if thinking about death, talking about death, staring death in the face leads me to that presentness and withness, then uh, I- I'm here for it. And, and and I encourage anyone listening or watching, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, because it will bring you to a, a depth that you didn't know was possible. Whew.
1: Damn, okay. Hope that's in your book. Christ. That's uh <laughs> that was that was real. And it's it's interesting because my initial thought was someone that's been around death so many times. Would relieve that anxiety, but then again, you've seen so the various ways people die. It's 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 I you know I always think is the fear that people have with death. What's going to happen after? Is it the transition, or is it really just the inherent thought of how I'm going to die and the thought of suffering, which I feel like is you know clearly a very justifiable fear and the idea of suffering before death is terrifying. So I think there's a lot of layers to that. Uh, I do want to ask you one more question as we as we wean out of here, because I've spoke to several different hospice nurses when Julie Penny and ha- yeah. Hadley, and um, they they always bring up visioning. Have you had any, ex- any quote-unquote experiences like that, being by the bed that allude to a near-death experience or visioning at the end of life or have you not witnessed that?
0: Wow, yeah, you know, there's some stuff that's not explainable, I guess, by like, you know, science or natural, you know, I, I, yeah, I've heard of things like And, uh, you know, correct me if I'm not um, answering the the visioning part of it. Like sometimes patients, as they near the end, if they're still able to, you know, awake and alert and able to communicate, they may say things like, I hear laughing in the next room, you know, or I hear my grandmother calling me home. And uh, is that what you mean by visioning, by the way, David? Yeah,
1: sorry for not clarifying. So visioning is... From my understanding, is uh, patients when they're on their uh, way to dying, whether it be weeks or days, they tend to see visually see loved ones, and they and, they, and from my mm-hmm. understanding, it's also not always correlated with the morphine or anything they're they're on or lack of oxygen. It just seems to be part of the institutional curriculum that hospice nurses are to expect people at the end of their life tend to vision quote unquote see deceased loved ones in the room or however they may see them.
0: Yeah, you know. So my atheist roots always keep me skeptical, you know? And maybe there are empirical, like physiological reasons that happens, who knows, you know? They've done those experiments where it's like, attach a person to an electrode, they send a certain signal, and then people feel like there's ghosts in the room or something, you know? And so I'm like, oh, is there a nerve in the brain or is there some kind of neurotransmitter you can just touch on, and then you'll start like seeing (laughs) stuff, you know? Or you'll feel like there's a presence in the room. And then the other part of me, you know, that has just seen too much that can't be easily explained. I'm like, for one, you know, why is everyone having that same experience?
1: What are those experiences that you've witnessed?
0: It's like, it's like almost very similar type of things, you know, and it almost to the point where it's like such common language, like light at the end of the tunnel or, you know, like seeing ancestors and and loved ones, hearing their voice. But especially things like I hear whispering in the next room or I hear laughing in the next room. And you know that th- that's not the next room, you know? Um, yeah, I hear I hear people talking or I hear people, there's a party next door. I've heard one time, I think somebody said like, I, I hear this banquet and I, I just want to go over there, you know? Wow. Things like that where I'm just like, you know, is that tapping into something? You know, mystical, spiritual, supernatural. And um, even if it was morphine or something else or something physiological in the brain, it's kind of like still that vision is pointing to something that maybe all of us want, Mm. all of us desire. And so, yeah, there's something, I've definitely seen my share of that and I've heard my share of that. All I can say is whether it's real or not, physiological or not, I never invalidate what a person tells me when they say they hear those kinds of things. I may ask them, yeah, who do you hear? Or like, what kind of food are they serving at the banquet? You know, yeah. that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, anything that a patient tells me, I'm not going to contradict them unless it's harmful to them, um, unless I've assessed that in some way it may harm themselves or others. If they start telling me, you know, there's, there's a turkey dinner over there next door, I'm like, oh, what kind of turkey? You know, are, are you hungry? Like, what kind do you want? We'll talk about that, you know? If they're hearing their grandma, I'm like, you know, well, tell me about your grandma. What was she like, you know? Or what is she like, you know? Or like, what's the first thing that you want to do when you see your grandma, you know? Mm-hmm. Things like that. Who else will you be reunited with? We validate that. And so I've seen that sort of visioning. And for me, I'm always going to validate that person's vision.
1: Yeah, that's real. And at the end of the day, when I think about it, it's, uh, if it is real... <sighs> that's incredible. And if it's not real, I think it's still incredible that our brains could even do that. You know what I mean? So uh, sometimes real or not, if it feels real, it's real enough. And who's to say what reality is at this point? So, cause I have freaking no idea. Um, but <laughs> listen, man, I, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing all this experience, these thoughts, these lessons. I think whether someone's grieving or not, you've alluded to so many different practical methods of Accepting or practical approaches, like you mentioned, to grief to actually get through it. So I want to I want to thank you for sharing all these experiences. And uh, as you mentioned earlier about plugging yourself, please use this last opportunity to plug yourself. You mentioned you have a book in the works, or let people know how they could find you. Use this opportunity to kind of toot your own horn, please. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> thanks, David. I uh, of course I do have a book coming out in May of 2024. I think um, I'm not supposed to release the title yet until next month, uh, November, but uh, it is coming out in May. Yeah, I, I love that it's coming out in May because May is Mental Health Awareness Month and it's also you know AAPI uh, Heritage Month. And so both of those for me, very important. Um, and I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the stuff, all, all the social media, uh, JS Park
1: beautiful man I, I'll, and when the time comes i will definitely you know uh plug you even more in regards to the book that comes out i love to love to check it out myself and yeah give this guy a follow please because you, you post some incredible stories and informational stuff that i think could apply to everyone so i thank you for that support system clearly it's working and uh, i really appreciate your time on here and for everyone else give him a follow check him out and uh do all that good stuff for dead talks and thank you for tuning in to another episode later guys